Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 35,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been living with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm Uh. feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Hi guys, welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. Uh, Today we're doing a special takeover. Danny has run for the hills because uh, myself, Gabriel Bergmoser and a couple of other authors have been given effectively a chunk of time to talk about the 90s children's series Animorphs, uh, which I imagine is going to reach a record high listenership for this podcast. So um, so as I said, I'm Gabe. Uh, I'm the author of The Hunted, uh, The Inheritance, couple of like kind of violent, gnarly Aussie thrillers and The True Colour of Little White Lie, which is like kind of the complete opposite, like very gentle coming of age YA type thing. And, um, and I'll throw to you guys to, to tell us who you are. Uh, I'll jump in if you like. My name's Jack Heath. I wrote a bunch of books. Uh, most recently, um, depending on when this episode drops, is either my uh, dark crime novel, Kill Your Brother, or um, it'll be something probably called Kid President Totally Rules, which is um, exactly the opposite of a dark crime novel. And I am a lifelong Animorphs fan. And I am Tobias Madden. Um, I don't have any dark crime thriller books on the way, probably ever. Um, I'm the author of Anything But Fine, uh, which is a YA book that came out last year. Uh, And my next book, Take a Bow, Noah Mitchell, is coming out this year in September. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty much me. Congratulations on the forthcoming book, Tobias. Thank you very much. Absolutely, dude. Um, I do have to ask, though, how is it possible that you grew up reading Animorphs and yet you haven't written a dark crime story? <laughs> because, <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's in there somewhere. Maybe I'm saving that for my kind of, you know, late 50s kind of writing career. I'll dredge something up from the dark. Maybe I'm repressing a lot of things. I don't know. That That's a high possibility. Um, but at the moment, I'm kind of just enjoying all of the kind of fun, fluffy kind of rom-com stuff i think particularly because you know the world is a shambles at the moment so it's nice to sort of spend your time (laughs) thinking about pleasant things rather than people trying to kill you it is funny isn't it that like i think people ask authors or maybe reviewers and stuff like they they look at a thing that an author has written and then they kind of say oh okay so it's in the vein of it's part of this new movement of kinds of books that we've seen over the last like most recently outback noir but prior to that, you know, Scandi Noir, or there's every sub-genre has its own trends and stuff. But if you actually are asking yourself why an author wrote a thing, you have to look at what they read 20, 30 years ago and go, okay, it it took about that long for the ideas to compost. And so, like, Tobias is still digesting Animorphs. It's going to be, like, another, I mean, I'm I'm looking at him, he looks, like, 25, and he mentioned, like, when he's 50, so he's still got to digest it for another 25 years before his Animorphs-inspired book emerges from its chrysalis. 
There's a lot to digest. It's a long series. <laughs> well, yeah, 62 in total if you include the spin-offs. It's, 62. Um, it's 62, yeah. And and I know because I reread the entire series last year. Um, and at times I question my sanity, but, but we'll come to that. <laughs> what, what I actually wanted to kick off with, because I am aware that for some people listening, they might not be familiar with Animorphs, which is a bizarre concept to me because why wouldn't you know all the ins and outs of an out-of-print 90s children's series? But um, but so so to my knowledge, I think, Tobias, I think you reread the first book not that long ago. I think I saw online. And mm-hmm. Jack, unless I'm much mistaken, you haven't read the book since you were a kid, right? <laughs> um, that is mostly accurate, but I did pick up the graphic novel version of the first one that has just been re-released, and I read it to my seven-year-old, and it all came flooding back about how inappropriate this series is for a seven-year-old. He's <laughs> he's going yeah. like, Visa 3 isn't just going to eat that Andalite, is he? And I'm like, um, well, strap yourself in, kid. <laughs> well, son, um, it, it's all downhill from here. We, have, we haven't gotten to like the... Um, the David trilogy or the Hawkeshire Chronicles or any of the, or the, or the ending, which, which we'll all get to, but, but I just think yeah, with, with my that in mind, Jack, um, is like 20 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So, so look, I think that um, there's probably nobody more appropriate than you, Jack, to give us an overview of what's the plot of Animorphs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, let, let me think my way back. I remember there's a bunch of kids. I don't remember exactly how many, but I can count them. There was Jake, there was Cassie, there was Tobias, there was Rachel, there was Marco, and there was another kid who's also an alien named Maximilian Esgroth is Phil. So the five kids uh, are given a cube that gives them the power to change into any animal that they want, although there are certain rules. They need to be able to find a living example of the animal and touch it first, and it takes a little while. Like, touching it calms it down, but it's nevertheless... (laughs) Luckily. (laughs) Yeah, that was all very convenient. And even more conveniently, Cassie's mum owns a zoo. The point... I'm getting ahead of myself. The point is that they are... um, are given this power by a dying alien who says that his species, the um, the whatever's they are with the extra eyes, Andalites, that's them, are in a long-running high fantasy space battle, sorry, space opera space battle with these other creatures, which I always pronounce yerks, but I seem to remember it coming out as yerks in the short-lived TV show. And not only that, but there are all these other alien races that are getting enslaved by the Yerks, and Earth has somehow found itself the secret battleground between these, well, these aliens that can disguise themselves as animals and these completely different animals, I mean aliens, that can take over anyone by slithering into their ear and taking over their brain. And there's rules for that too. So what results is like 64 books of guerrilla warfare, basically, um, where... Imagine tomorrow when the war began, but the bad guys are aliens and you've, you've basically kind of, kind of nailed it. And I, the reason I'm making that comparison, it occurred to me just today that when I was the age that this came out, so I started reading Animals when I was about nine, I think. And uh, then, and shortly thereafter, or maybe even at the same time, tomorrow when the war began came out and People like relatives who didn't know me very well, but knew that I liked reading, you know, for Christmases and birthdays, they'd all send me to Warner When the War Began because everyone said that was a really hot series that all the kids liked and stuff. And I'm like, stop sending me this. There's no aliens in it. I just want animals. It's like the same is <laughs> but better. So that's the best synopsis of the animal series I can possibly do. That was very good. That was 
very on point. Like I was, look, to be honest, this was, this was a, um, the eggs on my face now because it was sort of a semi attempted entrapment to be like, let's, let's see what you come up with. And I was like, oh wait, yeah, no, Jack, Jack kind of nailed it. That's, that's basically <laughs> the crux of it. Um, so, so on that note, I'd love to hear from you guys just a little bit about, I guess, what your relationship was with these books growing up. I'm assuming you read them growing up and that's kind of where we've come from. But Tobias, I might throw to you, like tell us a little bit about reading the books as a kid, what they meant to you, um, how you feel about them today, whether you've revisited them over the years. Like, yeah, give us an overview. Yeah, so I think, um, same as Jack, I think I started reading Animorphs when I was maybe nine. Um, and I used to get them in the Scholastic book catalogue that was delivered to the school and I would order it and then like, as soon as we'd sent them off, go and ask my school librarian every day if they'd been delivered. And she was like, absolutely not. It's going to be weeks and weeks. Can you get lost, basically? Um, but I persisted. Um, yeah, so I read them all back then. And I just remember I'd gone straight from kind of Goosebumps to Animorphs, which seemed like a very logical transition. And when I did my little kind of reread of the first book the other day, it seemed like a lot of other people had a similar kind of reading experience. Um and yeah, I just fell completely in love with the books. I don't know, there's something about them. And when I picked up the first book the other day, the first page, there's that bit that says, I've got it here with me. Um, there's a line that says on the first page when Jake, the main character, is introducing himself. He says, I won't even tell you where I live. You'll just have to trust me that it is a real place, a real town. It may even be your town. And I just remember reading that and my mind was blown. I was just like, I'd never been placed into a book so clearly before because Goosebumps is so, you know, so ridiculous that you don't really ever think, oh, this could happen to me. But this, I was like, oh, my God, this could happen to me. And aliens, you know, are realistic enough that you can kind of suspend your disbelief as a nine-year-old that this really could be happening. Um, yeah, so I fell pretty hard for the books um, to the point where I distinctly remember trying to um, acquire my dog at the time, which is where you touch the animal to sort of acquire its DNA. And I remember doing it and being like, I think she's really calm now. And then I <laughs> closed my eyes and tried very hard to turn into my dog. And obviously I did not, um, but that's the kind of kid that I was. Um, and yeah, so I just was obsessed for quite a long time. And I think, um, I think at some point, Weirdly, as Jack said, Tomorrow When the War Began came along and I think I jumped ship at some point. So I never finished the series. I think I got up to, oh God, I mean, I have literally no idea, but my mum would have all the books at home still. But yeah, I got partway through and then sort of got, my focus was stolen by, by other things. And I kind of wish I'd read them all, but I don't know if I can commit to a full reread like Gabe. <laughs> I it's made it as far, at least as far as this one, the, the oh, separation the star. of the starfish <laughs> one. Um, the starfish one was like actually one of the better ones. Like the Rachel acquires a starfish and then turns into it for God knows what reason. Like I have no idea what mission they were trying to accomplish. It wasn't even but a then, mission. It was that she drops an earring in a tide oh pool my God. and she decides <laughs> instead of like any of the other convenient morphs they've acquired over the preceding 30, however many books, she decides to acquire a starfish and goes in there and then a kid chops her in half with a spade. So it's not even yes. any good reason. So get this, Tobias, this will blow your mind. A kid <laughs> chops Rachel in half with a spade and then she panics and morphs out. But then there's two of her because she got split in half and starfish kind of regrow their limbs and yeah. stuff. 
but one of them is like the cowardly Rachel and the other one is the crazy aggro Rachel. <laughs> and I, um, I forget how they solve the problem in the end, but it just shows how, to what extent over the course of the series, the, the Animorphs, I mean, there's heaps and heaps of lore, like rereading that graphic novel mm -hmm. at the beginning, the dying Andalite just dumps a massive block of exposition <laughs> like in the laps of these kids. There's, you know, not only is there this war going on, but there's these other species who have been enslaved entirely and they need this, they need that, blah, 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 blah. But the authors found every possible combination of things that they could possibly do. Like you want mm. time travel, bing, you've got time travel. You want there to be a, one where there's an undersea lair where a Rachel learns that elephants can swim. <laughs> you can get that one as well. There's just every possible thing. But like you, I really loved that gimmick of pretending that it's true. I have a lifelong, so I still love that as an adult. Like there's a, a series by David Wong called John Dies at the End, where at the beginning he's like, okay, my name's David Wong. This is all true. I've, I've changed the name of the town to Undisclosed for, for safety. And then it's full of demons and stuff. And mm -hmm. Brett Stanellis wrote a novel called Luna Park, which at first appeared to be his autobiography right up until he moved into a haunted house and like gets attacked by ghosts. I kind of love that gimmick of telling someone something is true and getting away with it because it's so outrageous that it can't possibly be true and you can't be expected to believe it. When I wrote Hangman, I wanted to publish it under the pseudonym, no, synonym, no, uh, nom de plume, whatever. I wanted to publish it under the name of Timothy Blake so as I could be like, this is all true, and then tell a story so outrageous that it couldn't possibly be. And it's only now that I realise Animorphs is where I got that idea, like where I first <laughs> discovered that concept. It's so funny, like hearing you say that, because I had the realisation when I was rereading the series last year that, um, that this had influenced me enormously. And I'd never really made that association before because um, like, like you, Tobias, like I read Animorphs as a kid and... But, but that said, I didn't read them in order. I read them like well and truly out of order because I think it was like my friends at school were all talking about it. They'd all gotten into it. And I went to a tiny little sign school. So we didn't actually have the Scholastic Book Club thing. So all I knew was that there was a series called Animorphs. And if you want to be cool, you have to be reading Animorphs. So I just like went to my dad and I was like, can you get me Animorphs? And I think he got me the third book, which I think is why the character of Tobias remains my favorite character because that was the first one I read. And the third one is, you know, Tobias is the kid who's really bullied at school and he stays in the morph of a red-tailed hawk for more than two hours, which means he's trapped as a red-tailed hawk. And that third book, when you read it now, it's effectively just a character study that takes place entirely in his head of him just trying to deal with the fact that he's a bird now. And the main conflict in that book is him trying to convince himself not to eat a mouse that's running through his field and he's like trying to eat human food and he's trying to read books he's trying to live like a human but he's dealing with these these hawk instincts and there's this like lady hawk who's hanging around who he's attracted to and he doesn't know how to reconcile that and i was wondering if i was remembering wrong but i'm like yeah does yep. he get sexually attracted to birds <laughs> <laughs> oh yes he does no that that happens and um and for whatever reason i read this book as a kid and i was immediately in but i guess it was this weird thing where I jumped around like crazy. I think I read like three and then I read like 10 and then I went back to one and then I jumped way, way ahead to one of the other ones. And consequently, like a lot of the story arcs were really scattered for me. And look, for the most part, it was okay because Animorphs is quite episodic. And while like the, the first like 10 to 13 books 
are fairly packed with like, you know, new characters and game changes and you meet new people and there's like every couple of books, something happens that sort of changes the game. But then for most of the middle of the series, the status quo remains pretty you know, pretty level and doesn't change too much. So, you know, I could jump from book like 15 to book 36 and not really miss all that much, but it did mean that I missed, uh, I missed the conclusions to certain really key arcs. Like one of the most well-known Animorph story arcs is the David trilogy, where the Animorphs basically recruit a new Animorph, this kid called David from their school who finds the morphing cube. And they're like, we either give him to the Yerks or we recruit him. And then it turns out that David is a psychopath and he sets about like trying to pick off all the animals one by one. And I remember the second book in that trilogy ended with him turning up at Jake's place with a dead red tailed hawk and being like, I've just killed Tobias. And Jake goes after him and they end up having this fight in like lion and tiger morph on the roof of a mall. And David <laughs> bites through Jake's jugular vein and Jake like falls through the glass roof of the mall. And it talks about like everything going cold and him going dark. And that's the end of the book. And I never read the third one as a kid. I couldn't <laughs> find it. My parents didn't buy it for me. And I still distinctly remember like this moment of sitting in school when I would have been like, eight or nine like staring at the wall while my teacher was like you know taking us through some you know some morning music lesson or something and all I could think about was like Jake in Tiger Morph like falling through this roof bleeding out and dying and I just never got the end to that and so so like you know a lot of those like the, the darker books in the series like really really stuck with me and while as a kid you know I don't think I fully comprehended that this is a little bit different to the other stuff I'm reading um, you know, I look back now and I think one of the reasons I think the series stuck with me so much was the fact that it wasn't afraid to go into these really bleak territories and it wasn't afraid to grapple with really big ideas. Like with the David trilogy, it's like, well, what do you do in that case? And, and having reread the series recently, you know, they go through like, do we kill him? What do we do? Do we give him to the Yerks? Do we do this? Do we do this? And he heads them off at every turn. And so what they end up doing is trapping him in a rat morph by tricking him into morphing into a rat and leading him into a small enclosed space. <laughs> leaving him there for two hours and then dropping him on an island. And the final <laughs> line of the book is that people sailing past that island can just hear screaming from the island and nobody knows head, what right. it is because it's, it's the thought speak in their heads, yeah. which is how they communicate when they're in morph. And that's just where it's left. And it just lets you sit with the ethical implications of a lot of really, really messed up stuff. And I was talking to my mum about this recently and she was like, had I had any idea had I had any idea how bleak this series was, I never would have let you near them. But, you know, like you, Tobias, I think I, um, you know, I, I sort of like jumped ship and fell into other things, you know, like got a bit older, uh, Harry Potter came along and, um, and, you know, I fell into that and I sort of never finished Animorphs, but it was always kind of in my head that something, you know, I'd love to kind of revisit one day, never did. And so like you, Jack, I read the graphic novel and that sent me down this massive nostalgia rabbit hole. And I thought, you know, could I reread the whole series? Like, uh, like, do I have time for that? Probably not. But do I want to? Maybe. But my first port of call was like, oh, it'd be really cool to see if I could own the whole thing. So I, you know, naturally went on Amazon, went on eBay, saw if anybody was selling the whole set. And it turns out that like a lot of the later books are quite hard to find now. Mm. So the whole collection goes for about two, $3,000. And I was like, look, I like Animorphs, but I don't like Animorphs <laughs> that much. And so 
I sort of set about on this quest of like buying on like Facebook marketplace and stuff, like a bulk lot of like the first 20 and then just individually trying to track down all the remaining books and buying like, you know, bulk sets here and individual books here and this here and this here and this here. And in the end, realistically, I probably spent about three, $4,000 like getting <laughs> all of these books. So I probably well, just sort of bought Plus them. hundreds of hours. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it was, it was kind of fun in some ways, but, but, you know, it, it, the funny thing is that like through this whole experience, I didn't, um, I didn't actually fully intend to read the series again. And then I had one day where I had to get a COVID test and I was isolating at home and I just picked up the first book and I read the first two back to back. And I was like, oh God, here we go. I'm definitely <laughs> reading all of these. I, mean, yeah. yes, I did the lot over <laughs> last year. And, you know, some of them are really great. Like the ones that I remember well from being a kid, most of them hold up pretty well, if not better than I remember them. But uh, on the other hand, um, there were quite a few that do not hold up. Uh, there's quite a few, particularly in the latter half of the series, which is notoriously ghost-written, where you're just like, oh, did I did I have to read that? Like, did I have to sit through that one? Like, and but but that said, you know, there were there were very few that I outright disliked. Like most of even the weaker ones, I still got some kind of nostalgic kick out of, or there was still kind of something to recommend it. But in the end, you know, I was really, really glad that I read the whole thing and really, really glad that I finally actually got to see how it ends because I do think <laughs> the ending of Animorphs is like one of the, in terms of like children's literature, one of like the boldest and most challenging and most dark and interesting and unsettling and thought-provoking finales to anything I think I've ever read because it's it's like it really does not give you easy answers like the characters do awful things to win the war and they make some really horrible sacrifices and then the final book is basically just PTSD the book where the whole final book is just being like these characters are never ever going to get over this they're never going to come to terms with this they were child soldiers and like at the end like all of the humor and the goofy animal stuff and all of that kind of falls away and it just sort of lets you sit with the discomfort of the fact that yeah these guys won a war effectively at the cost of their souls and then you compare that to something like harry potter where everyone lives happily ever after and marries their high school sweethearts and nobody's ever really traumatized by anything and you kind of go like how is animorphs not more like prevalent in the cultural conversation right now because this was this was a badass children's series it's funny how you mentioned a second ago that you know if your mum had known what was in it she wouldn't have let you read it um she wasn't the only one who didn't know a few years ago at uh at the sydney writers festival i got to meet michael grant who is married to ka applegate and it turns out co-wrote uh, quite a lot of this series and so i mentioned to him the the david trilogy that you talked about before where they like think about killing him and then decide in the end instead to trick him into being a rat forever stranded on an island. And he's like, oh, yeah, that was the point at which we realised the publisher wasn't reading them anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> we could just do whatever we wanted. So it wasn't just your mum who didn't know. Like, the publisher had no idea either <laughs> how dark it was getting. It was, like, directly from their brain to the kid's brain. I'm seriously, <laughs> seriously un unsurprised by that because, I mean, I don't know if you guys got to, like, the point near the end where, you know, they, they enter like open war with the Yurks and they have to recruit, but they don't know who's controlled by Yurk and who's not. So they end up recruiting a bunch of physically disabled kids because they like kids in wheelchairs and stuff because they realize that the Yurks won't go for them. But ah. for these kids, like when they're in morph, you know, they're as dangerous and as anybody else. And then they use them as cannon fodder. 
Like in the final <laughs> book, they use these kids as like a distraction, pretending these kids are the animorphs and like drawing Vista 3's attention. And there was like this one moment that will sit with me for the rest of my life where one of them's in Rhino Morph and is like charging the Yurks and Vista 3 blows her in half. And it talks about how the front half of the Rhino keeps running by itself for a little while before it keels over and collapses and all of this stuff. And I'm just like, or, or then there's like the whole, um, the subplot in the book Visser, which is the backstory of the Yurk invasion, because all of those like backstory books, like the Hawkbajir Chronicles, the Andalite Chronicles, the Elimist Chronicles, Visser, like the lore that was explored in those was awesome. But I remember getting this point in Visser where it's like the first Yurks to discover Earth, um, a male and a female. They end up infesting like a human male and female and like having babies with their bodies and like, you know, basically living this human life. But then the host bodies are like invested in the children because it's their biological children, but the Yurks think it's their children. And it like, and it layers in all of these, like it, it's so messed up and so disturbing. And I just like remember reading it and being like, I don't, like I didn't get to that one as a kid and I don't know how I would have responded to it or how I would have like, understood it have i got i got there as a kid because it really does not pull its punches by that point it definitely doesn't sound like a kid's book when you detail all of that like it really does sound like an adult series but i feel like i feel like kids kind of live for that stuff whether or not they fully grasp you know how awful some of the things are or how dark some of it is kids really do love that kind of feeling like they love being scared and they love you know all that that kind of really dark stuff I used to this is a complete tangent but I used to teach this contemporary dance class for like probably the same age actually as we would have been when we were reading Animorphs like nine and ten year olds and we used to do these improvisations where I would just put on a song and the kids would all just like dance whatever and afterwards I'd always be like what were you dancing about like what was the story and the things that they would say were so grim they were always grim they were never happy things they were always like I'm a girl who has been trapped in the basement and she's decided to kill herself or something like that. Like, and these are like little kids and they obviously don't understand completely what they're talking about, but they just, I don't know. I feel like they're really drawn to all of that kind of dark, scary stuff for some reason. Yeah. So the mystery isn't really with, with the Animorphs um, series, the mystery isn't why did they write it that way because kids obviously always respond to it. The, the question is more how did they get away with it, I guess. Like how did they get, get past, um, you know, the parents, the, the librarians, the, the various sort of more conservative minds and stuff? Because, I mean, I write, I'm not like you guys. You guys write YA and I write middle grade. Um, so my books are in the same section of the Scholastic Book Club that I saw Animorphs in back in the day. And when I first started writing for that age group, having not done it before, the publisher was like, okay, here's the rules. Um, you know, so firstly, there's the obvious stuff, no sex, no drugs, no suicide. Uh, but then there's like the less obvious stuff, like bad things can happen, but not to any of the main characters and none of the main characters can do anything bad like in in YA you can have the odd sort of anti-hero or flawed hero but in middle grade everyone's kind of got to be squeaky clean and not just no sex but no romance at all because kids aren't considered interesting or interested in that and then along comes Animorphs that breaks every single one of those <laughs> not the hard rules like oh actually suicide. well yeah pretty pretty much everything yeah. is in there and you end up with even the romance stuff 
where like when I was the age that I was reading Animorphs, I would have said, no, I'm not interested in reading romance. I am a boy. How dare you? Um, even though I probably secretly was. And I was so deeply invested in not just this romance, but this doomed romance between Tobias and Rachel, where oh like God. he's a bird, <laughs> you know, it and can't he, possibly work. <laughs> and he wants to stay a bird. Like it's, there, there's, there's one bit in one of the books, I think it's 33, which maybe is my favorite book in the series on reread, where um, Tobias morphs human because he gets his morphing powers back later and he goes to the school dance with all of them and Rachel tries to trick him into staying in human morph for more than two hours like mm. she tries to keep him there by like you know sort of being like no no stay with me and dance with me and like almost sort of seducing him into staying there and then Tobias realizes that there's like two minutes left and runs away and it's this constant push-pull where like oh there's one book where you know Rachel gets some attention from some other guy and she's like you know do I actually try to have something with this guy because I can actually have something normal? But then like Tobias is like flying overhead watching her because he does that. And there's like this weird, and, and you know, the way that the way that it all ends obviously is tragic and terrible. But I was surprised by like how heart-wrenching I found it because I was very invested in Tobias and Rachel as a kid. But as an adult, you read it and there's just something so moving about the fact that Tobias, as the series goes on, he kind of starts to realize that it's very possible that he deliberately trapped himself as a hawk because we're led to believe it was an accident but as it goes on you sort of go okay he deliberately trapped himself and then he actually gets the chance to become human again but because he'd have to stay in the morph for more than two hours he would lose his morphing abilities and he doesn't want to give that up and he doesn't know how to articulate to Rachel he always makes all these excuses to her he's always like oh you know but I can be more used to the animorphs this way and I can do this this way and I can do this this way but the internal monologue makes it very clear that he's like no I, I just want to be a bird <laughs> like and I'm constantly <laughs> torn between the two and it's and it never gives you an answer like it never gives you a straight answer as to like you know what the resolution is or what would work because it, it doesn't work it wouldn't work they're they're too they're too separate they want two different things and again it just lets you sit in that discomfort it's it's beautifully challenging stuff mm, it's funny i remember like when i read it as a kid i that moment when tobias gets stuck as a hawk in the first book i was like oh no this horrible accident now he's stuck as a bird but when I read it as an adult it's so clear that he wanted to do it I don't know when I read it this time all of his kind of backstory with his kind of troubled family life and all of that stuff and he speaks about you know how beautiful it feels to be a hawk to feel so free and all of that stuff as soon as it happened when I reread it I was like oh that's he's chosen to do that to you know as an escape from his actual life which I totally didn't get as a nine-year-old um, but now I was like, oh, that's, yeah. And it's just, it's so heartbreaking. That whole thread is just so brilliant. Yeah. He presents more like less as a kid who got stuck as a bird by accident and more like a, a bird addict who overdosed, like just took, <laughs> took slightly too much morphing and then got, got stuck and kind of has mixed feelings about it in, mm. in that way. Yeah. The, the tragedy of it all it, it does tragedy really well in a way that I think sort of that genre typically doesn't. And I include myself in that, like my, my danger series for every story has a happy ending, <laughs> ditto the screen books and stuff like that. But in the animals ones, I was thinking about the, uh, the forgotten, which was my favorite. So it involved, I've forgotten a lot of the details ironically, but I remember they ended up <laughs> in a jungle fighting yikes and then, a bunch of them died, including Jake, but 
by dying, he closed some kind of time rip that meant that, that sort of this time travel undid it all. And in most series, I think, if time travel just undid everything that happened, it would have this feeling of ethereal meaninglessness uh, in just about any series you can think of that tried it, even, you know, Avengers comes to mind. But in Animorphs, the fact that none of it happened feels devastating rather than convenient, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, Whoa, all, that, all those experiences are lost. No one remembers it but me, you know. Um, yeah, just amazing. Jake has to like live with the PTSD of it without having, you know, without being able to talk to any of the others about it or because there's a few times that happens. There's the one where they, um, where Visa 4 goes, it's, it's Megamorphs 3, uh, Elfangor's <laughs> Secret, where Visa 4 goes back. Yeah, going uh, so deep into the... I'm so, I'm so, so good. Can I, can I tell you guys Book something? Three um, of Megamorphs, yeah. With when, uh, when I was... When I was rereading the series last year and I was going through this very obsessive phase, uh, my 30th birthday present from my housemates was two hours uninterrupted that I was allowed to talk to them about Animorphs and that I was never allowed to bring it up again. So I made a PowerPoint presentation and um, like literally on the day I turned 30, my housemates all dutifully sit in the room and I take them through. I, I've still got the PowerPoint presentation on my computer. And I take them through and I'm like, now these are the Yurt class species. So obviously the Scritinara are unsuitable for infestation. The Taxon is suitable. <laughs> but come with major downsides because they have a hunger. The Hawkbidger are suitable, but there aren't that many of them. The Andalites are perfect, but they're too hard to claim. And, and I was going through all of this. And I went through like the whole like crazy metaphysical backstory of like the Elimist and how he became the Elimist and everything. And um, and yeah, so no, I, I, I went like very, very deep into like <laughs> obsessive animals nerddom. It was, it was great. But, but yeah, like the, uh, I remember Megamorph 3 was one of my favorites as a kid. And that's a, no, no, sorry, no, I'm wrong. It wasn't Megamorphs three. It was Megamorphs four, where they have because in Megamorphs three they go back in time because Visa four is like messing with time and messing with like great battles in human history, and they have to go back and stop him. But they end up like messing up time, and like America becomes like this super fascist state, and like all kinds of like messed up stuff happens. But um, but in Megamorphs four there's this thing where Jake makes a deal with the Krayak to change it so that they never walk through the construction site and they never met, um, they never met Elfangor. But what ends up happening is that they all end up finding out about the war anyway and having in this alternate timeline, having to fight the war without their powers. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's this really dark, really full on book where it's like, you know, Axe comes to earth, but isn't rescued. And so he like kind of has to escape and try to reveal, like expose himself as an Andalite to the world to reveal that the war is going on. And Tobias willingly becomes a controller because again, it's that whole thing of him wanting to escape his life. So he willingly lets a Yurk infest him and all of this stuff. And then at the end, due to time travel bullshit, Cassie's the only one who remembers. And it's a similar thing to what you're talking about, uh, Jack, where at the end, Cassie's like, I just have to live with like knowing that like Jake did this and like gave up on the war and knowing that Tobias gave up on this and knowing all of it. But again, it's like that thing where it's like, yeah, you could make an argument that it's tragic because none of it happens. Oh, uh, sorry, that that's meaningless because none of it happened. But in reality, it's actually just really tragic because again, like the recurring theme of PTSD with these kids mm -hmm. that keeps coming up. And it's like, well, Cassie just has to live with this. And because of what, because of the dark truths that have come out about all of the characters in this alternate world, she can never tell any of them about it because she would just completely deplete their morale if she did. Like it's, it's really, really heavy stuff. On which <laughs> note, I wanted to ask, because, you know, we've all written for young people and um, I had this recent, uh, 
incident, I was working a TV writer's room for a new um, ABC kids show. And it's a, re- it's a really, really cool show. And I think it's going to be fantastic. But I think I'm probably allowed to sign. I didn't sign any NDA, so I hope I don't get sued for this. <laughs> but, um, but it was just curious because there are a lot of really intense stipulations in writing children's TV about what you can and you can't show. And a big part of it is what you alluded to before, Jack, the whole thing of being like, you know, we can't have the main characters do anything bad or whatever. And so one of the major plot points involves the main character sneaking out of his room and going somewhere at night. And to me, that's pretty innocuous because it's like the, the main character's a troubled kid. He's lost his best friends. Um, he's sort of acting out and he tries to sneak out and go somewhere in the middle of the night. And we got like really intense notes back being like, absolutely not. And I think it was almost like a half day in this writer's room was spent trying to work out how we could naturally get him out of the house without breaking any of these frankly quite puritanical rules about what you're allowed your characters to do and I'm or what your characters are allowed to do, which kind of makes me go, you guys ever read Animorphs? Like, you know, the main characters like commit several genocides and, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. But, but on that note, I guess I wanted to ask, like, what do you think Animorphs would work today? Point A and point B, what do you think has changed in that back in the 90s, we seemed to be really comfortable with moral ambiguity, particularly when it came to children's literature. And even in the 2000s, you know, you saw it in A Serious Unfortunate Events. And yet nowadays with content for children, it feels like there's, or children or young adults, it feels like there's this real push to this moral binary that I don't think is particularly truthful or valuable for young people to read about um do you guys agree with that or what do you think uh yes definitely um and i think i think if animorphs was published today with kind of the content that it is it would definitely be a young adult series there's no way this would be a middle grade series anymore um and i think that that's not necessarily a good thing either. I think obviously we all read it. We're all fine. Millions of people read it. They're probably all fine. I'm sure some of them might be a bit weird, but they were probably going to be weird anyway. And I think in the end, I like I kind of feel like that about most things for, you know, children's books. I feel like they're the very last thing that is going to make someone a criminal or make someone a this or make someone a that. I don't think books kind of really have that power i think seeing kids do bad things probably teaches you even more quickly how to do the good things than just seeing kids how to do good things um often and i do wish particularly in in the kind of young adult space that we were not veering so heavily towards that like you said that kind of moralistic storytelling where everything has to be perfect and characters have to be perfect and flawed characters are kind of not always enjoyed and authors get criticized for writing characters who do bad things when it's, you know, it's, it's all art and art is so many different things, but the one thing that it shouldn't be is like a moral handbook. Um, And I think obviously the Animorphs writers took that (laughs) to the very extreme, but I think, you know, it's just stories and you learn so much from stories, no matter, no matter who's doing the good or bad things, they're all happening, whether it's bad guys doing bad things or good guys doing bad things, they all happen. And I think it's good for kids to kind of sit in that grey area and, it, you know, it makes them think about how, how they would react and what they would do. And, and most of the time, I'm sure, they would be leaning towards good, lawful, correct things in that situation. But forcing them to think about it, I think, 
is really probably quite valuable. Well, I think what's mm. what's really clever about Animorphs is that, you know, there's never a point where any of these, for want of a better word, like dark choices or maybe or maybe hard choices the characters have to make are glorified. They're never glorified. It's the books really do make you sit in the toll this takes on the characters and the cost it has for them. And I mean, like I said before, the, the final book of the series, like the second last book really is the climax. And the final book really just is like... um like all of the surviving characters because not all of them make it through and some of them are just like outright sacrificed by jake making choices at the end and at the end and it ends ambiguously basically saying they're never going to get over this and it and, and there was this beautiful thing it's really worth looking up um ka applegate wrote a letter to the fans because there was so much outcry about the ending and about how bleak the ending was and how ambiguous it was and sort of ended on a cliffhanger where effectively the surviving animals are just like walking into another war and it's implied they're walking into it willingly because they can't cope with civilian life and it's probably a suicide mission, but what else are they going to do? And, um, and, and there was all this outcry for it. And she wrote this fantastic letter where she was like, oh, you don't like it? Well, that's war. And she was like, if you, she goes, and if you don't, if you don't like the ending to my little fictional war, then, you know, pretty soon you're all going to be a voting age. And the next time somebody puts their hand up and says, maybe let's have a war, maybe think about it. And just leaves it at that. Like, and I, I love that. I love that discomfort, but I love the fact that, you know, I think that the books are fairly, in a weird way, fairly morally pure because there's nothing in those books that indicates that this is behavior they're encouraging you to emulate in any way, you know? I think it's a it's a genuinely complicated issue because sometimes uh, I want to believe that art is meaningless, right? Because that's enormously freeing to artists. Like if if art doesn't matter, then then there's no censorship. You can do whatever you want. But I also think that there's um, uh, maybe. For example, the recent-ish dystopian fiction boom is about how those those sort of little disobediences, like climbing out the window and and escaping at night, like you wanna you wanna have a TV series where the main character uh, is a kid who climbs out the window and runs away from their parents at night, you might be in trouble. But you wanna have um, Katniss Everdeen sneak out her window in District Thirteen that's fine. Like if you set it in some other, um, if you set it in a fantasy world or in a dystopia or whatever, then, uh, then suddenly those real life behaviors, they, they don't come across as potentially influential to the audience because the audience is kids who are not in that situation. But I also think um, like in, in each of my adult books, I put kind of uh, not exactly a trigger warning at the beginning, but because I have like readers who are children and readers who are adults in all the adult books, it says, look, this this book contains scenes that may disturb some readers. It is unsuitable for children and some adults. That's what it always says, because I figure that covers me for basically everything. <laughs> um, but I think that the in deciding what is appropriate content for children to to see, it's it's a bit different in books than on TV, right? Because you have to actually imagine it in your head, whereas the TV does all the imaginative work for you. So you can be more easily traumatized by something that you see on a TV than something mm. that you read in a book. But I also think it's true that some books for adults have things in them where the point of them, what, what makes them interesting or confronting is that an adult reader recognizes that that's not the way the world works. 
um, whereas a kid may not necessarily. So sometimes um, for a, the most recent example that springs to mind for me was the movie Kingsman, but I've heard people discuss John Wick the same way, where, uh, you know, you have um, a character who something, the bad guys do something bad and the good guy is the guy who comes along and murders all the bad guys, right? I sometimes think that that kind of story appeals most um, to the people who understand that the world isn't that simple, that like doing good isn't as simple as killing all the bad guys. But that means that, so if a kid is watching that movie, they may well walk away with the message that, okay, the good guys are the guys who kill the bad guys. Whereas an adult can watch the same movie and go, oh, if only it were like that. This is so therapeutic for me. <laughs> Imagine if instead of having to listen to someone whine about their problems, I could just punch their heads straight off their shoulders. So you're actually giving them some kind of cathartic release that the kid doesn't get. They, they are still forming their view of what is normal in the world. So maybe that's why it's okay. Because if you set it in another world, like Animorphs, where it's a world where aliens are invading and stuff, then um, that kid doesn't take home that same message that this is what the world is, therefore this is how I, I should behave. I think you could have the same series, but if you replace like uh, controllers with say, um, uh, if you did a find replace on controllers and changed <laughs> it to like Russian sleeper agents, and, like <laughs> to KGB agents or whatever, and then left everything else the same. The story would come across as it, it would still function, like it would seem perfectly normal and you'd still have these like child soldiers dragged into a war that they don't understand and making difficult choices about um, whether, whether to kill people in order to save other people or not, but it wouldn't be a children's book anymore. It wouldn't work in, in that same way. You need the barrier of science fiction to kind of the the genre is a prophylactic <laughs> to kind of stop those dangerous messages getting through i mean yeah because it, it's funny i did this um i did this debate a little while ago for um for a writers festival basically about like fantasy and science fiction and it was talking about that exact idea of like science fiction at its best does kind of provide a velvet glove over a sledgehammer that allows like quite challenging ideas to be explored. But, but I'm curious though, because you mentioned before, Jack, like in your experience of being told, you know, you can't have the main characters do anything bad. You can't have this, you can't have this, you can't have this. And yet it would feel like, you know, Animorphs is kind of flying in the face of that. So do you think something has changed like in the last 20 years in, in that, or, or do you think animals were just a fluke? Like, do you think those same those same rules were there at the time, but like you said, the publisher kind of stopped reading it because it was successful, so they just kind of got away with a lot? Um, or do you think there has been like a shift towards something more moralistic? Well, Tobias is a publisher. He might be able to, to provide some psychoanalysis <laughs> on, <laughs> on that. Um, I mean, I do the marketing. I just do the fun stuff. So I don't, you know, it's, I think generally there there is a bit of a trend towards that kind of stuff um but i think it's temporary i think you know as we all know publishing goes in trends just constantly and everything's changing and constantly in flux but i think yeah i don't know like i don't obviously read a great deal of middle grade now but i do feel like that this probably wouldn't yeah like i said before i don't know if this would sit on a middle grade shelf these days um but I, I kind of feel like that's sad because, you know, we clearly all got so much out of it 
um, in so many different ways and probably ways that we didn't even realize at the time as well. So I feel like, you know, I, I do wish that this kind of book, you know, still existed. Is it out of print or is it yeah. still on shelves? Well, apparently, I think my understanding is that about 10 years ago, they tried to re-release them and um, like with new covers and everything and uh, and updated pop culture references and stuff. And they just kind of flopped and disappeared. But I mean, it's interesting because it does feel a bit like, uh, like, you know, because I've been thinking a lot when I was rereading the series, I was thinking a lot about how would you introduce Animorphs to a new generation? And I think the graphic novels are, are a great start and by all accounts, they're quite popular and everything. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was away for a friend's 50th and I was talking to her kids and I, I was wearing my Animorphs t-shirt and the kids were like, oh, what's that? And I, anyway, I, I actually, I'm so embarrassed to admit this. I pulled out my PowerPoint presentation. I was going to say, please tell me you got the PowerPoint out. out. <laughs> and, um, and then like, they are still yeah, in I, the basement watching that PowerPoint on a loop. Yeah, that's it. Um, but I um, but it's funny because then like they were sort of asking about like how to read the series, and I was like, well, look, I've got kind of doubles of like the first twenty from when I was buying them all. So I was like, I'll give those to you. But it really got me thinking because rereading the series, I was like, it's it's dated in some respects because it's packed full of very very nineties pop culture references, which like if you grew up in the nineties, like we all did, then that's very charming. But like for a new audience, it'd be really confusing. It'd be like, wait, who's Hanson? And, and, you know, all of, mm. all of that kind of thing. But, well, um, you have a crush on Brad Pitt of all people. <laughs> Brad Pitt, he's like grandpa's age, but you know, there's, so there's a few things like that, but also the sheer volume of books doesn't feel like it kind of lines up with how middle grade is published these days, because, you know, it was the kind of scholastic um, mass produced era of like Goosebumps and Animorphs and Babysitter's Club of just like bringing out a book every month, which I don't think happens anymore, like in that same way. So like, it kind of feels like Harry Potter came along and changed the game a bit where suddenly middle grade was like longer and less books. And we sort of moved towards, you know, your Artemis Fowls and your Alex Riders and your Percy Jacksons and that kind of thing where there could be a lot of books, but there weren't 62 short books coming out one per month. So I was kind of thinking, you know, do you, um, do you republish them as kind of an omnibus where you edit them and you maybe get rid of some of the less important books and you, you know, you release like 10 books that combine them all or something, or is the graphic novels the way forward or is a complete reboot the way forward? Like if you were going to introduce Animorphs to a new audience, how would you do it? I don't, I, mean, I don't understand what a TikTok is, but I got it. <laughs> the children are into these days. Is there some way we could turn animals into a TikTok? <laughs> I think that might be a little difficult. Although with the right transitions and stuff on TikTok, you could probably do some almost animal morphing kind of things. I don't know. I feel like maybe Gabe, maybe you're right, and maybe it's not about sort of reissuing the old ones, and maybe it is about someone taking the the core of the story and just rewriting it for a new generation. I mean, I feel like we see that so often now with films where they're redoing all of these old films that were already really successful, often based on books. Um, and now they're all getting updates, even like all the Disney live action remakes, because they know that kids aren't going to watch The Little Mermaid from 1989, but they will watch a live action Little Mermaid that's coming out in a couple of years. So it's like, and they, they're different, you know, they update the stories and add music and all of that sort of stuff. So maybe it would be someone kind of, you know, giving it a once over and, and setting it now and making it more contemporary and stuff like that. But, you know, like we said before, like, would it still kind of work for that middle grade audience? 
if you if you did keep the core of the story, would it remain the same? I mean, I'm still so devastated that the TV series was awful because I feel like it could have been really good. So I'm kind of rooting for like a an HBO like almost like adult version of Animorphs, like kind of really gritty and Game of Thronesy, but Animorphs maybe I don't know. I can see the appeal in that. But on the other hand, I kind of feel like maybe if the TV series hadn't been so terrible, I might not have become a writer. Like, I, <laughs> my, uh, you, you mentioned sort of the, the goosebumps to Animorphs transition that a lot of people of our generation went through. I went uh, Doctor Who novelizations, then Teen Power Inc., then Animorphs. That was kind of my... Um, my thing and so Teen Power Inc was never adapted as, as a TV series or as anything as far as I could tell I'm the only person on earth <laughs> but those other two so I was reading Doctor Who books and then reading Animorphs books and then I got old enough to watch some actual Doctor Who on the TV and this was you know before Doctor Who was any good like it, it was uh, you know prior to the current renaissance and I'm like wow, that alien is clearly just a dude in a rubber suit. <laughs> and, you know, those <laughs> uh, are just rubbish things. And then I kind of watched the Animorphs TV show and I'm like, okay, so um, the Andalite is just a guy with some sticks on his head and like fake googly eyes and stuff. And I'm like, maybe, maybe books are the superior medium. And then I went away and became a writer. <laughs> you know? So because I had that, and not just any writer, but... I mean, Animals was my first exposure to the genre, to the sort of blended genre of sci-fi action, right? Like they weren't just sci-fi stories, they were action stories, which was not true of um, the, you know, Jekyll and Hyde or the Robert Silverberg or the um, John Wyndham novels that I'd read prior to that. Um, Animals had, you know, yes, they were sci-fi concepts, but at the end, um, someone turns into a grizzly bear and just like smashes yeah. <laughs> and often in the middle as well so and then I ended up like my first book was a sci-fi action novel so you can draw for me and probably for a lot of other writers a direct line between Animorphs book series being amazing Animorph tv series not living up to expectations <laughs> writing career like that's I, I can't be the only person with that arc I'm I'm gonna just confess outright that I loved the TV show when I was a kid. Like I just I saw it as effectively interchangeable. I was so excited every time it came on. I still remember the theme song so vividly. Um, like I loved one episode. I thought it was a pilot and nothing else. No, they did two seasons. Um, <laughs> yeah, it what? was it was terrible. Um, but it's <laughs> and 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 this is where I also admit that last year I rewatched most of it. Um, and I uh. Yeah, I remember like um oh there was this point where I was like I was sitting I was sitting in the living room and I was like and I was it was like late at night and and um I you know I I was sort of thinking I was like oh maybe I'll watch first episode of Animorphs but I was like I don't want anyone to catch me watching Animorphs so I like opened my <laughs> laptop and I found it on YouTube and I was like surreptitiously watching it like I was somebody watching porn and I'm sitting there watching the first episode of Animorphs and one of my housemates came in and just instinctively I just slammed the computer shut and I just looked at them and was like hey what's up and and she looked at me and her eyes narrowed and she was like, are you watching Animorphs? <laughs> and like with the same level of like bewildered disgust if she'd caught me watching, you know, something. But but like, but you know, I, I ended up watching most of the series through. And 
it is terrible. It's it's nostalgically charming, but it it did kind of make me wonder, you know, because I think everybody talks about the idea of being like, oh man, it would be so cool if there could be like a big budget, like Netflix or HBO take on this. But the more you think about it and the more you look at the old 90s show, you go to do it right will be so prohibitively expensive. Like with all the aliens, all the alien planets, every book ends with like a massive all out brawl between like, you know, tigers and bears and hawk bajir and taxons and all of that. Um, and that's, you know, not, not accounting for like the massive space battles or if you, you know, you go and do like the hawk Chronicles or the Andalite Chronicles and you do that like with, you know, a full-fledged cast of only aliens. So, I, I, like, it, it does make sense to me why the TV show didn't work. And at times you can see the TV show sort of awkwardly fumbling for the same kind of interesting moral ambiguity that the books did so well. It never succeeds, but, you know, it does kind of go for it here and there. But, you know, when, when your fights are a very clearly green screens tiger walking around mm. the place and a bunch of humans like falling over themselves in the foreground. And there's dramatic music trying to convince you that this is somehow remotely compelling. You kind of sit there and go, yeah, look, you, you would, you would doom before you started, but, but you know, like, I don't know with a modern TV budget, could, could you do it? Um, it's, I mean, it is a challenging thing. Like I, I wonder if like, you know, a, a dark, animated series would be the way to go you know mm. like something in the vein of like um you know avatar the last airbender or something that you know like maybe that's the way to do it so you, you're not that constrained by budget but I, I don't know i actually don't know um i mean my my dream project one of my many many dream projects would be to write like a ya like 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 if i was going to reboot animorphs basically i would i would force awakens it and so I would have like, you know, a new generation and have like, you know, a kind of grizzled, traumatized older Jake kind of coming in and, you know, um, basically teaching them. But then as it goes on, there's kind of a lingering mystery of like, where's Cassie? Where's Tobias? Where's Marco? And you kind of find out bit by bit and they all sort of come into it. But um, but you would write it as a YA series. You know, you do you wouldn't do 64 books. You do um, you do like, uh, you know, three to five and you make them quite a bit longer and you make them darker and you kind of explore those darker territories but i think that would kind of be the only way to do it unless you were going to reboot the original series in book form from day one um i think the graphic novel is kind of as close as you can get to to repackaging those original books for a new audience without fundamentally changing the text somehow i think i think that all sounds amazing <laughs> yeah, you're i'm totally like you can write that just contact k applegate and be like oh, i'm sure she i'm sure she'd totally sign me up for it I mean, it's, I, I, it sounds amazing. I love that, like, having the old Jake kind of setting the scene and getting new kids on board and stuff. I think that's amazing. And I also think an animated version, even anime, could be super cool because anime does dark incredibly well. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Neon Genesis Evangelion series, but, like, that kind of stuff, which has that real like moral ambiguity and just these poor traumatized kids fighting all these angels that descend on the earth like i feel like that something like that could be really cool but i'd be emailing k applegate if i was you okay don't encourage me do not encourage me because i'll probably <laughs> do it and i absolutely do not have a three book outline already written i, I definitely don't don't look on my computer I'm assuming that uh, old Jake has an eye patch and while he's talking to this new younger generation, every now and again, he clearly loses control and his hand turns into a tiger paw and then he has to like visibly sort of... Don't, 
stand until it becomes your thing. <laughs> Don't do this. I'm gonna. I, I will. I will take all of this. I will take all of these notes and I will write them down. And I will probably <laughs> email Ka. And I. I don't want to be that guy because. I'd imagine I'm not the only like '90s kid author who's probably done this, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. People, um, people always underestimate just how influential children's literature are because is because, like I said earlier, the the authors who are writing as adults, they're they're not copying stuff they read last year. They are they are writing a natural development of the things that they read as a kid. So there's almost no point to a. Uh, a, a reboot of the series because kind of it, it was so influent, influential um it's it's that weird children's literature hybrid of both influential and largely forgotten because even the people who read it may not remember that they read it when they're later producing great art but like always happens with any sort of art a bunch of people hopefully absorb it and then they take the good and then they forget about the bad mm. and then the good to make their own art and then other people build off that and build off that if you kind of go back to sort of like um i, I think i didn't go back and reread the animals books like last year and i think if i did like you said gabe a, a lot of them don't hold up well now and that doesn't mean they weren't good at the time but the time is kind of gone because the good ideas in them have been built upon by other other authors and other things. I kind of believe in, firstly, don't tell Netflix I said this under any circumstances, but I don't believe that every every book is just like a chrysalis waiting for a, for a movie or a TV <laughs> show to burst forth from it. I, I always believe that the book is kind of an end unto itself. And, but I also kind of believe in leaving leaving the past in the past because it's it's the context in which it was supposed to be absorbed is gone and that's okay it's it's like a musical performance that isn't recorded like just because it isn't recorded doesn't mean it wasn't worth doing people enjoyed it in the moment and now they can go on and live their lives and it's, it's like that difference that they talk about between the experiencing self and the remembering self i think i feel like the animals books were for the experiencing self <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, talking about like um, you know, the the moment kind of being gone a bit because because it is always that thing with with nostalgia, right? Where it's like you know you you visit your old school or you visit an old house or whatever, and you kind of maybe have part of you that goes, oh, this will be you know really cool, like trip down memory lane, and it never quite feels right. It's like yeah, there's like superficial things that are the same and everything. I mean, what I. What I think I took away from my Animorphs reread above anything else was the fact that, yeah, there was a lot of nostalgia initially, but as it went on, I actually found that rereading the series kind of superseded my nostalgia because eventually I just started to enjoy it on its own terms. And as a writer myself, I just started to admire the fact that this children's series was willing to go where it went and to have such complex, morally ambiguous characters and to be so brazenly challenging and, you know, there was, there was a great article I read saying that the big secret animal of success is, is the covers because the covers were so goofy <laughs> that no adult was ever going to read them and tell you that you shouldn't. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's so look, I don't know. I think it's, um, I think it's one of those things where the, um, the seminal impact that animals had on me as a child can't ever be replicated because, you know, I was a child reading them and it's the same way that the other things I consumed when I was younger, I, I will never have that experience again, but to be able to revisit something 
as an adult and find a new appreciation for it, which isn't isn't emulating that childhood inspiration, but is in fact me looking at it from a different perspective and saying, wow, there is still actually a lot of value here. And this is still really cool. And I can still be a 30-year-old man doing a two-hour presentation to my housemates about it because I just find it so exciting and so cool. I mean, that in and of itself is like almost the most magical gift of all when it comes to revisiting anything from your childhood because how many things are there that we revisit and they're terrible, you know? Um, and But but yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it's such a complicated issue because I feel like as much as I'm going on about wanting to do my Force Awakens Animorphs, I'm the first person to roll my eyes every time I see a trailer for like a nostalgia bait Ghostbusters or a new Star Wars thing or whatever, because, you know, I find that nostalgia only lasts so long. You know, I watched The Force Awakens and like everybody else, I got emotional when Han and Chewie turned up and everything. And by the time Rogue One came out, I was like, stop it, stop it. I get it. Stop <laughs> with the references because it wears out very quickly. Like it's, it's a hollow emotion and you can't ultimately replicate what you felt when you were younger and that does make any potential reboot challenging because the first audience would be nostalgic people mm. we talked a lot about um you know how how good the writers were okay applegate and michael grant and, and uh, the ghost writers and and all that but it's worth acknowledging the genius of the publishers as well like you talked about the the goofy covers with the morphs and stuff but also the um, listeners who are the series who are for whatever reason listening to this, like there's a, they're also flip books. <laughs> like you can oh, yeah. flip through the corner and watch the character uh, turn into an animal. And there's even things like, um, so the dialogue, you mentioned thought speak earlier with those, um, those little sort of arrow things that if I'd gone to university, I'd know what they're called on the either side of the, the text to show the thought speak. There were all sorts of ways that Animorphs was um, not just packaged, but stylized, mm -hmm. I think, in a way that um, showed a, a lot of genius on behalf of the um, whoever the product team was behind it. And even the, the sort of decisions where they've gone like, okay, we've got a hit on our hands, we can't wait for Michael Grant and K.A. Applegate to, to spend sort of two months on each book. We need to hire an army of ghostwriters just to keep up with demand. We need spin-offs. We need, like, recognising what they had. And then, <laughs> this sounds so neo-capitalist, but, like, recognising what they had and exploiting the heck out of it while the iron <laughs> was still hot, you know, I, I admire the hustle. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's... um. I mean, it was, you know, it was an industry for a while there, you know, there were, there were like, I mean, I'll show you guys, I'm fortunate this will be visible on the podcast. But, okay, um, I'm, I'm describing I, I this Dave is going over to his bookshelf. I got yeah. some action figures. I bought these on eBay for way too much money. So I got the uh, transforming Tobias Hawk action figure and the axe turning into a scorpion figure and everything, which I had oh, as, as a kid, but I lost them and I wish I hadn't. And, and, you know, it would have saved me more than I care to admit to. But, um, but you know, it was like, it was like goosebumps. You know, it was an industry for a while there and they... They, you know, they they did absolutely milk it for all it was worth. And I mean, I, I can't imagine because the toys were out before the TV show was out. Like, I can't imagine. Mm. I think they were anyway, if I remember correctly. But I can't imagine like a book series today having like action figures based on it. Or like, I think like there were there were like KFC toys and everything and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> like for a while there, it, it was absolutely massive. And there was like a certain degree of genius to really embracing that like, multi-platform franchise thing at the time because you know with the exception of the tv show it seems to have largely worked yeah and i think like like you were saying like the the whole the whole package of the book is so incredible and even down to 
the spin-off things and like the Megamorphs. Like I think the Megamorphs was probably one of the first books I read that had multi POV chapters in it because all of the first Animorphs books obviously are just from one of the characters' perspectives and Goosebumps was the same. And I think until I got to Megamorphs, I hadn't really read anything like that before. And I remember as a kid finding that so thrilling to be able to sort of jump in between different people's heads, you know, which um, is probably a lot more common now in middle grade. But back then, like, I, I don't think it was necessarily. And I think, yeah, the, the publishing team obviously just made some really brilliant decisions to keep people hooked and expanding that empire. And it's just, yeah, a really, really brilliant stroke of, of genius in the publishing world, I think. I um I reckon I, I assume we're gonna uh, wrap this up soon. Or I get the feeling that that Gable Gabe's kind of waiting for an excuse to break out his PowerPoint and show us. No, <laughs> I, won't, I won't subject you to that. No. I I wanted to to say that if anyone has read, um, so if you are listening to this and you're like a, an Animorphs mega fan who um, misses the feeling that you got from those books that has that kind of thing where rereading them isn't going to give you that feeling that you're after. The other, the subsequent Michael Grant series, Gone, and then the series after that he wrote called Berserk, that spelt B-Z-R-K, um, include a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the same DNA as, as the Animorphs, if you'll pardon the expression. Like in, in both cases, you've got young people thrown into kind of a wacky, maybe wacky is the wrong word, but a really sort of escapist out there type situation that escalates so quickly into becoming, becoming something so hard hitting and nightmarish that you can't, uh, like the Gone series, for example, is about a bunch of kids who, oh, well, one day all the adults in the town vanish and the town is hidden under a dome and no one's quite sure what happened. But you're like, oh, okay, interesting mystery. And then by book two, they've already turned to cannibalism. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the subsequent Michael Grant series are a good place to, um, to check out if you, if you want your sort of Animorphs vibe, if not the, the morphing itself. I think it's probably worth noting as well that um, K.A. Applegate's subsequent series, Everworld, is also super cool and doesn't have the Animorphs vibe, but it's a really, really interesting kind of mythology mashup of Nordic myths and Aztec myths. And it's quite gory, if I remember um, correctly, uh, but very, very cool. What about you, Gabe? Do you want to plug another middle grade series you enjoy or are you all Animorphs all the time? All Animorphs all the time. I'm uh, I'm an evangelist. I'm a total evangelist at the uh, at the Animos Ultra right now, but um, no, look, I don't know. I um, because it's weirdly I never read any of the other. I mean, I, I think weirdly I'm probably now more into Animos than I was as a kid. Like, I definitely was hardcore into it as a kid, but you know, I, I read all the whole series last year, which I didn't do as a kid, which was a bit, you know, maybe strange, but whatever. I enjoyed myself, but I, for whatever reason, I never read any of the other K. Applegate stuff, and I think I missed the boat on Gone a little bit because I remember it being big, but I think by that point I'd kind of like. I was, I was sort of moving on to like darker thrillers and all of that kind of stuff. But since I've gone down the Animorphs rabbit hole and joined too many Animorphs Facebook fan pages and all of that stuff, um, Gone, Gone does come up a lot. So I think I probably will check it out. Not not because I'm trying to like, um, you know, replicate some, some Animorphs feeling or whatever, but just because I'd be really, really curious now having reread the series and having, uh, I guess, seen the scope of the ambition of what Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant achieved in these books, 
I'd be really curious to see, you know, what else they do in some of their other series and like how they how they deploy that very unique approach to writing for young people in in something else. I'd be yeah, I'd be more than curious to check it out at this point. So so yeah, but but I do I do have to say though, after 62 books last year, you know, I was I was a little bit ready to let go of Animorphs, you know, <laughs> like I was I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how many more of these I could have done, but you know, that the last yeah, the, the ride of the last 10 books was was exceptional and did it did go out in a high for me. Um, guys, we've been talking for over an hour, and I feel like um at this point, Danny's probably like biting her nails, being like, Am I going to have a regular audience after this episode? Or is everybody <laughs> just being like, shut the hell up about animorphs and like abandoning ship? So we should probably relinquish her podcast and uh relinquish her listeners. But I wanted to say, um, Thank you so much for jumping on for this because I think I think you maybe said this off air, Jack. But um, when I put the shout out, on, when Danny told me uh, asked me if I wanted to do this, I put the shout out on Twitter, and I was met with silence and crickets. And <laughs> you guys, you know, rose up like the morphing heroes you are, and uh, you know, <laughs> saved me from just replicating my PowerPoint presentation into a void. Um, you know, I, I really really appreciate it. And it's been like I feel like we've covered a lot of really interesting territory. And apart from anything else, it's just been really cool to have the chance to nerd out about animorphs. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank oh, you. It has been so fun. It was all you, buddy. You were the the Marco gorilla and we were the other Andalites or the other Animorphs like <laughs> transformed into fleas riding your back on the back of the truck. That's the, um, that's what I love we were. it. I love it. Perfect, perfect metaphor. All right, guys. Well, um, I, I don't know how, how, how we wrap up these, um, these takeovers <laughs> yeah, or how Danny normally... <laughs> <laughs> wraps up the podcast I'm, I'm hoping that danny comes in and like does this better than uh be- better than we do but um to those out there who's li- who've listened um thank you so much uh hope that you know we either gave you a hit of nostalgic fun or made you potentially interested in checking out a 20 year long out of print children's series from the 90s but um otherwise thanks again and all the best <laughs>